Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome to Rational in Portland. I'm your host, Kristen. Thank you so much for tuning in. In the studio today, I've got two Oregonians who I really admire and like very, very much. One is Betsy Johnson, who ran for governor. Many of you will remember she ran as an independent. She shook up the political scene, made national headlines prior to that. She was an Oregon state senator. I also have Max Williams. Max was elected to the Oregon legislature for three terms. He represented Washington County. He chaired the House Judiciary Committee, and then he pivoted to the executive branch of state government when Governor Kulingoski asked him to lead the Oregon Department of Corrections. Most recently, Max has spent the past 11 years leading the state's largest public charities, President and CEO on the Oregon Community Foundation. Welcome, Max Williams and Betsy Johnson. Great. Well, thanks, Kristen, and uh, uh, thank you for inviting uh, Senator Johnson and myself to be on the program today um, and to talk a little bit about our efforts to fix and improve Ballot Measure 110. Um, This is a coalition that uh, came together um, uh, in the spring of last year, really with the concerns uh, that we had seen what was happening uh, as a result of Measure 110 uh, around the state. Um, Dramatic increases in drug overdose deaths, um, challenges in neighborhoods, uh, increasing crime rates, um, and uh, a lack of people accessing uh, treatment, uh, which was the original plan uh, uh, for the measure in the first place. Um, You know, I think a lot of people in Oregon were enamored by the idea of more people getting access to treatment that Measure 110 had promised. And yet when they were seeing what was happening on the ground and when we were looking at Secretary of State audits and other things, it was pretty clear that it wasn't delivering on that original promise that uh, people had. There was a lot of conversation at that time around the idea of um, repealing Measure 110. Uh, And I was of the strong opinion that we shouldn't repeal Measure 110. Uh, For years, I've been working uh, to try to increase the amount of resources the state has to invest in drug and alcohol treatment. We've been woefully, uh, uh, you know, underinvested in that area for many, many, many years. And in fact, when Measure 110 passed, Oregon ranked 49th out of 50th in access to treatment. So the one part of Measure 110 that I uh, thought was uh, a really great idea was that we were capturing these cannabis dollars uh, the tax revenue on cannabis and, and building a better treatment uh, and recovery infrastructure that the state desperately needed. And I hated the idea of seeing that potentially go away and being reopened for a conversation about what to do with that cannabis money. So we started working on this idea and having conversations with many people, treatment providers, folks in law enforcement, people in recovery, Uh, around the idea of what we might do differently uh, to make Measure 110 actually work and deliver on the promise. And that led us to the development of uh, uh, several uh, concepts in ballot measure form uh, that we filed in the September timeframe. And these were really about trying to bring us back to a place where there were both rewards and consequences built into the system that would help motivate individuals dealing with addictions, suffering with substance use disorder, Um, would motivate them to actually seek treatment and recovery. And that's really the fundamental component of this effort. This is not about punishing people for their addiction. It's not about putting people in jail because they're struggling with addiction. It's about putting enough tools in the toolbox that we have both on the public health side and the public safety side to move people into treatment and recovery and get people off the streets. Max, you talked about how treatment was the original plan of Measure 110, and I think I voted for Measure 110. I think one of the things that I was confused about, um, I should have read the ballot measure. One of the things I now know is that the Drug Policy Alliance meant harm reduction for, as a, for treatment. That's what they really meant. They used the word treatment, and I think colloquially, 
Um, most of us think of treatment as detox and rehab, and I think the Drug Policy Alliance that brought us 110 knew that and used the word treatment. Uh, treatment is, in their words, defined as harm reduction, and of course we all learn that later. Um, but to their credit, they've opened up, I think, at least one detox. They're talking about doing another one. Do you think that that's because they've looked around and seen the polling and seen that the tide has turned on 110 and they're realizing that they're either going to get kicked out of this state altogether and 110 is going to go away or they're going to have to meet all of us somewhere in the middle? Well, I'll just say I think it's probably a combination of many things. I think most treatment providers would tell you that um, we haven't had sufficient detox um, and sobering centers around the state. And I think we're one of the last in the country. Right. And I think that's one of the things that uh, has been an obvious challenge. Um, you know, those things take some time. And I think here's the thing that I think a lot of people and, and you know, you're not alone in voting for Measure 110. Obviously, 58 percent of Oregonians liked the idea of trying to address the addiction issue through the criminal ju- or excuse me, through the public health system and not as much through the criminal justice system. And, you know, that's an admirable outcome. Uh, if we can achieve it. I think what most people didn't understand was that we were 49th out of 50th in access to treatment and that we were going to actually execute on the decriminalization issue within 90 days of the passage of the measure. So had we built five years' worth of investment in building our systems, um, we may have ended up in a different place. But the real objective of Measure 110 was to decriminalize these drugs. Uh, the treatment and the recovery piece was more of an afterthought for for the Drug Policy Alliance, in my opinion. And I don't even know that recovery was a thought for the Drug Policy Alliance, but that's just my opinion. I would agree with you. I think that their plan, right straight along, has been to use Oregon as a Petri dish to see about uh, decriminalizing every drug everywhere in the United States. And we have a relatively easy path to the ballot, <clears throat> I think that the way that this was sold was completely disingenuous, if not bordering on fraud. It was, should you go to the joint for a joint, was what I had heard people characterize it. And the answer was certainly no. I agree with Max that the treatment piece of this was what many people thought they were getting. I voted no. I campaigned against it. Um, I, I just was very, very dubious. But I want to go back and talk about the treatment please, piece for just a, sec- a second. Because I think the important piece of the treatment is some measure of efficacy. We can't just be opening beds and and counting that as a win. The goal here is to actually get people through treatment. And so having some kind of metrics that define what's successful treatment. Is it somebody stays clean for two hours, two days, two weeks, two months, two years? What what are the measurables? It's not just throwing more money at a problem without having those key delivery points that demonstrate that we're moving the needle towards getting more people, more treatment faster, and that it's durable treatment that actually can change lives. Is the data collection piece part of what you all are working towards? Uh, Obviously, it's part of what we're working towards. What we included in our measure was um, uh, two elements that uh, don't get a lot of coverage since the focus is mostly about the issues around recriminalization. But one was to shift the supervision of this issue um, from the Oregon Health Authority to the... um, uh, our agency that's responsible for drug policy, um, the ADPC, the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission that's appointed by the governor, we think that's an actual better location to oversee the administration of the Measure 110 funds. The second thing we did was we, uh, in our measure, suggest that we open up those dollars to go to more than just currently um, the, the resources that are being used to include areas around prevention, because none of the Measure 110 money goes to prevention, um, and to require the money that is going into treatment and recovery services, that those services um, be evidence-informed and evidence-based. We know a lot about what works um, in drug recovery today, and there are a lot of great things, and I'm not uh, saying that that should be at the exclusion of harm reduction, because I believe in harm reduction. Narcan and similar kinds of programs are harm reduction, and I think those need to be part of the overall solution for people who are struggling with addiction and relapse. 
But we also need to make sure we're investing in programs that we know, as Betsy says, moves people to recovery. And recovery, in my mind, is defined as a drug-free lifestyle. That's the recovery that we're hoping people actually achieve. But having a plan that pulls all of this together is terribly important. I have not independently verified what I'm about to say, but I was horrified to be informed by a reliable source that right now Portland Public Schools is adopting a curriculum that was largely drafted by the drug policy guys. That's exactly right, and actually it's their current curriculum. Well, and, and gives kids the advice, start low and go slow. Yes, that's that's exactly what it says. I read it myself. That does not achieve the goal that Max wants. And if we're taking some of our most vulnerable potential, and I regret to say current drug users that are kids, and advising them that there is a methodology to continue to use drugs, um, it, absent this cohesive plan that does the prevention that Max wants, that tests the efficacy that we all want, and that has some degree of data management to follow up on people that have been through these programs to know that the gazillions of dollars that we're spending is actually doing something. And just driving in this morning, the the streets of Portland are exhibit A in how the absence of a plan for homelessness is, is creating more tents on the streets. The absence of a plan for drug addiction is allowing more drug addicted and mentally ill and in some cases co a co-occurring situation to be loose on the streets, bringing up crime, bringing up uh, people's lives being devastated. We don't have a concrete plan. And I have to say that I was pretty disappointed to see the governor and the mayor and the head of the Multnomah County Commission declare a fentanyl crisis. So all you need to do is drive around the library and you know that there's a fentanyl crisis. Right next door this, to this building, and you walked around a little bit before you got here. What did you see? Oh, I saw tents blocking the right-of-way in contradiction to the ADA lawsuit that was brought by Mr. John DiLorenzo. Uh, I saw people um, clearly troubled either by mental illness or by addiction in the in the street uh, walking. Um, the, the real tragedy is that frequently you see kids involved in this. I mean, little kids. And uh, so downtown, by any measure, is a mess. And to now declare a, a 90-day crisis, that crisis has been ongoing for three years. And I will just add, before I give the mic back to Max, that that's one of the reasons that this analogy to Portugal makes no sense at all, because a fentanyl has not washed up on Portugal's shores the same way that it's washed up on Fourth and Davis here in Portland. Well, my understanding from Aaron Schmaltz, who went on that Portugal trip, is it hasn't washed up yet at all. Yes, that's and they also my don't have guns. Yeah, I mean that changes that changes the the theater of this experiment entirely. Yeah, and they didn't even do. I mean, they did a far better job with their experiment than we did. They used a doctor and built out detox and rehab centers before they decriminalized. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's not a, Portugal is not a great comparison. No, for, and they say don't model yourselves after us. Yeah, for a wide variety of reasons. And, and uh, there's actually some uh, articles today in the New York Times that uh, do that comparison and that would be worthy of people's uh, review. But I, I do want to focus on the kids issue just for a minute because I do think it's an important element of what else we missed when we, uh, as a state, uh, elected to move forward with Measure 110. The the juvenile justice laws base themselves off of the adult criminal law. And so when we decriminalized for adults, we also decriminalized for youth. And so at the same time, we took away tools for um, law enforcement and others to manage these issues at the adult level. We took those same things away for um, juvenile justice and juvenile probation officers to manage for youth. And Oregon has now got the highest increasing rate of overdose for teens and early uh, young adults um, in the country. Um, That rate has increased dramatically. Um, And, you know, Betsy and I are very careful when we talk about this issue to to make clear that people understand, you know, we're not saying that uh, Measure 110 caused homelessness. We're not saying that Measure 110 caused addiction or caused crime. We're simply saying that the timing and the passage of Measure 110 exacerbated all of those issues um, dramatically across the state. And although 
our experience is often the Portland-based experience because it's where we live and work. Um, this is a statewide challenge. Um, you know, I'm talking to people in Eugene and in Medford and in Bend and uh, in uh, communities on the South Coast that are experiencing these same problems and, and often have fewer resources than we have in the metro area uh, to address the issues. So this isn't just a Portland problem. Uh, this issue is a statewide challenge. That is absolutely correct. When I was still a state senator, I represented five counties. Six, arguably, I had one house in Yamhill County, literally one house in Yamhill <laughs> County. But I, I watched it um, overtake Astoria, and it is the same menu of problems that accompany, um, the I believe, the unbridled use of of uh, drugs. The, it's it's the homelessness, it's the crime, it's all of the exacerbating factors, child neglect, domestic violence. It all is tied up in one, but I want to say for emphasis, again, I completely agree with Max. We do not say that Ballot Measure 110 created this problem, but it was certainly an accelerant. Do you have any data that it was an accelerant? I mean, when I make arguments like that, I'm always told correlation doesn't equal causation, and I say I have eyes and ears, but I have. I, I don't know that I found data that can literally um, link it as a cause. Well, it's it, it is difficult, uh, and there are numerous studies. There are studies that uh, have come out that reflect that there have been increased overdose deaths as a result of Measure One Ten. There's some studies that have been done that say you can't find that correlation. Although one of those studies was co-authored by Haven Wheelock, who was one of the the um, promoters of Measure 110. That is correct. And who also runs Outside In, which was received a financial beneficiary. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, there is a, a publication, a, a medical journal where that's published, and they do a conflict of interest disclosure. But the Journal of American Medicine, with JAMA, which I would consider to be the gold star standard right. for articles, that doesn't have a conflict of interest provision right. in it. And I found that stunning. And no one, I also noticed that no one who wrote that particular article, and I'll link to it in the show notes, has an MD. They're all PhDs or MAs in public health. Right. I, I, or or one's, one's got a JD. I mean. One of the things I'd do is just, I, I'd first encourage people to just say, you know, trust your own eyes. You, you, you know, ask yourself the question, do you think things are better or worse since the passage of Measure 110. So, you know, I don't know that how much anybody needs to read the studies to see what's actually happened. But if you look at the CDC data, if you get onto their data and look at their data between 2020 and 2022, um, Oregon's rate of overdose deaths increased by 101 percent. Um, that's a that's a staggering increase uh, uh, in comparison now, there are other states that increased as well, but no state increased as much as Oregon's overdose rate increased during that period of time. Um, and it was dramatically above uh, the national rate. Um, so I would just say, you know, there, there is plenty of data to suggest that when we decided we were going to not pursue um, any sort of criminal connection and use of the justice system to help people move towards treatment and recovery, um, that, that that's had an impact on our streets. And I also think when we communicated to the outside world that we were going to decriminalize these drugs, it was an invitation for drug markets and others to come and set up business here, thinking that it would be a place where there would be less enforcement. And cartels. Mm -hmm. I mean, and these things advertise themselves. I mean, the whole world can see what we're doing here. Absolutely. And that's why I don't see the, the paucity of hard data as anything that would nullify what you see with your eyes. What you hear from Southern Oregon about what's happened with legal marijuana, any flat spot in Jackson, Josephine, and parts of Douglas County that you can put up a hoop house is now prime grounds for growing dope. And I was talking to a county commissioner, albeit a few months ago, but uh, about the number of open murder cases that they have. And these are not questionable murders. These are execution-style murders. So Oregon, I think, has earned itself, and I use the word earned advisedly, but we have garnered for ourselves um, this reputation of so laissez-faire on drugs that anything goes. And um, with Max pointing out the, the uh, effect on juveniles, I think it's practically an encouragement for juveniles to involve themselves in activities that heretofore would have been de deemed illegal. And, um, and now they're growing up in a culture of drugs and uh, drug entrepreneurship, I would say generously. 
but um, this is a huge problem. And and don't discount what our eyes tell us just walking around Portland. And you talk to any cop in Portland, and they will tell you that the amount of activity, um, use, uh, trafficking in uh, commerce in drugs has has gone through the ceiling. I would just say as well, though, there, you know, I, and to people's credit, I am now seeing more people uh, raising the issue associated with um, prevention. Um, uh, Senator Lieber, as she made her comments with the legislative uh, proposal that was announced uh, a week ago Monday, um, uh, talked quite a bit about prevention. I've heard Governor Kotek talk about prevention. I think that the, we have gone a long time without any kind of prevention investment in Oregon around drugs. Um, because of the tobacco lawsuit settlements, we actually um, have a lot more money in Oregon to spend on tobacco prevention than we do on drug prevention. Um, and I think uh, more investments in prevention, I think, will ultimately result and come out of this. And that's the right thing. Um, and there's a great uh, opinion piece today uh, that got issued in the Lund Report um, uh, by a father who's had direct experience with uh, an overdose in his family and talks a lot about the issues of prevention and, you know, we just need to change that. But, but there is a philosophical difference. Um, there are people, and you can read these articles that are, you know, leading this effort that are focused on this concept of body autonomy, that we ought to be allowed to put whatever substance in our bodies we want to, and that shouldn't be the government or anybody else's concern. Um, and that philosophy, um, has actually caught hold in a number of communities and it's a dangerous philosophy and one that gets us more towards the circumstances that we're experiencing now uh, than ever before. And I think it's time to take a strong stand. And I hope that with our measure out there as um, the backstop, that the legislature will actually in February take a strong stand on this issue. Um, listen to the, to the citizens of this state who overwhelmingly now agree uh, that decriminalizing drugs in ballot measure 110 was a mistake. Uh, and redirecting these dollars towards prevention and recovery and treatment options is um, the right direction. Uh, just anecdotally, last night as I was leaving work, one of the popular radio talk shows had done a poll on ballot measure 110. Should it, uh, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? And at the time that I got out of my car to go to my last meeting of the day, there had, there had been zero affirmative responses and all of the I don't know the final tally because I don't know how long the the phones were open but they had gotten no support for ballot measure 110 I would hope that the legislature would pay attention to that having served in that body for two decades uh, I can tell you that as I departed every single person with an x next to their name was decrying homelessness decrying rampant drug use they now have a tangible chance to do something about it and I hope that they do something meaningful. Uh, we know from our, our scientific polling, we know from radio polls, we know from um, conversations that we have engaged in during this initiative that the public is overwhelmingly with us to, to um, <clears throat> put, put uh, both the carrot and the stick back in our dealing with drugs. And I'm confident that if the legislature fails to meaningfully act, that when we go to the ballot, we will be overwhelmingly endorsed by the public. And that will result, I think, in some of the things that Max had talked about, uh, uh, that it, it may take the focus away from treatment as much as we would like it to be. And and I, I know that we anticipate keeping the theme of treatment in all of our efforts. But uh, the legislature has a chance to do something really meaningful. Uh, and I, just, I hope they act on it. We, we um, are pleased to see that uh, the proposal that the, that the, that the two co-chairs of the, of the Committee on Addiction uh, that they set up after we filed our ballot measure, um, both agreed that we should move towards recriminalization of these deadly drugs. Um, the, the part we were disappointed by was that their um, efforts around recriminalization were at a very low level. And, and I know this is hyper-technical and lawyers speak for a lot of folks and they may not be as interested, but they came out with a proposal that would make this a C misdemeanor, um, which is just one level above where the current, you know, writing the, the ticket violation is. And most of the time, C misdemeanors are done through a citation. 
um, as opposed to an actual arrest. Um, and a C misdemeanor has a maximum uh, penalty of a 30-day jail term. And I want to make clear, this isn't because we want people to be in jail um, for longer periods of time, but the way this normally had worked prior to Measure 110 with a, with a drug court system that we had was that you would have a period of time in which the person was under supervision um, through the parole and probation office in coordination with a judge at a drug court. So as a person was moving through treatment and recovery and they had a slip-up of some sort, they failed a drug test or they were in violation by being with people they weren't supposed to be with or whatever that was, you had the ability to actually sanction someone for a day or a two days in jail and then bring them back into the community and for them to continue to work towards their recovery. Um, people I know who have, judges who have ran drug courts and treatment providers will just tell you that a 30-day window, of which the maximum is going to be likely 15, is not going to be enough time to hold somebody accountable, particularly on these challenging drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine. So our purpose of wanting that to be a Class A misdemeanor, which gives you 364 days of potential supervision, um, and a sanctionability isn't because we want people to be in jail for that period of time. What we want is we want there to be a long enough period of time in which the consequences are real for the individual that they will ultimately be motivated and be able to actually um, make progress on their treatment and recovery and you know clear up with the drug use enough to see that this isn't their best interest. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people who work now in the field who are in recovery who will tell you it was that sort of a system that ultimately got them motivated to get clean and then turn their lives towards trying to help other people go through that same process. And if you're talking about a 30-day period, it's just not going to be enough to make a difference. Most people will treat that the same way they currently treat the e-violation. They'll crumple that thing up, they'll throw it away, and they'll, and they'll move on with their life, and there won't be any consequences. The second component uh, of that required a very complicated thing they call deflection, which is making sure that the person is offered the opportunity to have treatment before they move into any sort of a court-related process. Now, we like that. We, we actually proposed in our own measure um, a diversion program, a pre-arrest diversion program where people could seek recovery and treatment before having any law enforcement engagement. Um, but their deflection requirements are so complex and convoluted that the people in law enforcement and at the courts and others that I've talked to just tell me that it's not a workable solution. So I would say good job, legislature, on first effort at coming out with something. It doesn't go quite as far as it needs to go, and it's a little more cumbersome than it needs to be. And there are solutions uh, that you could make between now and the time you adjourn in February to address this issue. And that's what we hope that they do. And that's what we would ask people who are listening to this program who care about this issue to reach out to their legislators and communicate to them their desire that they actually put enough teeth in this effort that it will actually make a difference and not just simply be recriminalization in name only, but back to the same system that we've currently got now. Measure 110 is a great natural experiment to show what doesn't work in motivating people into treatment and recovery. And what we know doesn't work is handing somebody a paper ticket for somewhere between 45 to to $100, telling them to call a hotline number, um, and expecting that that's going to somehow for them be a pathway into treatment. We know by all the data, no matter who you are, um, no matter whether you support Measure 110 even now, we know that model doesn't work in moving people towards treatment and recovery. But we know from our old experience working with drug courts uh, that the old model did work. And what we've built into the proposal that we've um, offered uh, the legislature for consideration and the voters, if they choose not to act, is one that has off-ramps. If you go into that drug treatment program and you're successful, you can avoid any criminal penalty at all. Even if you go into the program and you're not as successful and you do get convicted for the misdemeanor and you complete your supervision, we are proposing that the record be that your record be expunged, that it comes off your criminal record. We're not looking to put more people in jail and we're not looking to build up people's criminal history. That's not the purpose of this. It's just to give them the enough motivation in the process to seek treatment and recovery and to become um, well. Uh, and that's what we're hoping. And I think it's important to remind the listeners that you were head of corrections, Max. So you know something about which you speak. You were also 
co-chair of that committee in the legislature, um, which is, I mean, we were talking off air and you were saying that's part of why Governor Kulangoski, even though he's not from your political party, asked if, if you wanted that position in, in corrections. Yeah, I, I mean, I've spent most of my career um, actually being uh, considered to be probably, for many people, too progressive on law enforcement and justice-related issues. A rhino, if you will. Yeah, well, and now I'm not even a... You can't even use the R on me anymore. But what I, but what I would say is that, um, you know, I have always felt like we... Sh- and Oregon has been progressive on criminal justice issues, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, the goal here is not to put more people in prison. Sure. There is a misunderstanding, and I want to make this clear. There is a misunderstanding uh, among people that Oregon was locking people up for small, minor possession drug use. And that's that's not been the case probably since the early 1970s. Um, when I was the director of corrections, nobody was in prison for possession of small amounts of drugs. If you were in prison for a drug charge, it was because you were either selling or manufacturing drugs in large quantities. But almost everybody, well, 70, 75%, had a drug-related challenge. They had an addiction-related challenge. But it wasn't the drugs that got them into prison directly. It was that they committed either a person crime felony or a property crime felony. And so one of the things that I try to remind people of, early intervention at the possession level, like we're talking about, with low-level sanctions and supervision, is the best way to intervene with these people before they commit a more serious, more complicated, more violent, more destructive crime that would be then subjecting them to a felony conviction and a trip to prison. Um, And that's what will happen with a lot of these people if they don't get access to treatment and recovery. What about the argument that your sanction is too low level, that it shouldn't be a misdemeanor because you can rack up as many misdemeanors as you want. You could rack up a billion with a B misdemeanors and not end up with a felony ever. And that a lot of these people, especially if they're on fentanyl, they're, they don't really care about a class A misdemeanor. That's not really going to, cleaning that up is not going to impact their life in any particular way. They may abscond somewhere or just kind of forget about it. People like you and me, yeah, we'd take that seriously. But in general, the argument that I've heard from listeners is, hey, the vast majority of these people are not going to look at a Class A misdemeanor as any kind of real threat. And shouldn't we be treating fentanyl as the emergency it is and the killer it is and attaching felony penalties to this to let people know um, how serious we're taking it and maybe that would be the real deterrent? You know, it's a fair question, and I've talked to a lot of people, um, particularly on the law enforcement side. Um, the challenge with a felony uh, uh, for someone in, in that situation um, is that a felony is going to be, you know, basically at a minimum a year in prison. Um, and what we know about people who get a felony on their record, if we follow that data. But does it have to be a minimum of a year? I mean, could, doesn't the judge and the D, don't the judge and the DA have discretion to divert those people, even those people into drug court? We see Mike Schmidt doing this all the time with Measure 11 crimes. Well, you can definitely there are systems of diversion. But when someone is actually convicted of a felony. I mean, you could charge the felony and then plea it down. Exactly. Um, And they have discretion to do that. And they certainly have discretion to do that. Um, But I think by making it a felony, you run the risk of having people end up with a potential felony conviction on their record. And what we know about a felony conviction is for most people, it reduces their life expectancy earnings by more than 50%. So you almost guarantee that you're creating another class of people living in poverty every time uh, you convict somebody of a felony. That's not to mean that in certain circumstances or the right ones that a felony conviction isn't the right solution to hold a person accountable for what they did. But this is where I sort of straddle the line here with my own view about addiction. I think you need to use the criminal justice system in the way that it works best in helping hold someone accountable but not becoming punitive in in the negative consequence that they'll experience even if they make it through ultimate recovery. Now, that's not to say you let people off the hook who've committed those serious person crimes or um, property crimes. Um, you know, if you if you do the crime, you suffer the consequences associated with that. But the, the but the actual addiction itself, I don't think ought to be a felony. Um, 
So the a listener question also was, well, look, um, what if we do erase the criminal record, right? What if we go ahead and we wipe clean the slate and, and people finish treatment? Um, and then we know that I think the data supports that like fentanyl is very difficult to get off. You, the first time in rehab probably won't work. I think, I think probable is fair to say. If you've been a fentanyl addict, probably. Well, I mean, heroin's hard enough, right? And that was back in the good old days. Um, what about the argument that, hey, this person's slate has now been wiped clean, they're back at it, and we have no memory now. The criminal justice system has no memory of what's gone on before. They could have racked up 500 of these Class A misdemeanors, but we'll, we'll never know because finally they completed treatment and that thing's been wiped clean. Yeah, I, I would say it's a it's again a fair a fair point for people to raise. Um, you know, my initial response to that would simply be to say, knowing that they had done that previously doesn't really change the level of intervention that we would want to make with them in the current moment. Holding that on their record becomes a huge barrier for that person later in life, even if they ultimately are successful. Relapse is often a part of recovery. Uh, we know that from people probably in our own lives we know who've dealt with either drug abuse or alcohol abuse. So there is always the opportunity, and in most cases, some people, well, in most cases, people experience relapse. But I don't think that holding that on there and compounding it by keeping that criminal conviction on their record for something that we're really using as a motivational effort is in anybody's benefit. It doesn't really benefit the state. It doesn't really benefit the individual. And so I think you have to look at the cost benefit associated with keeping something on their record. It wouldn't change the next round if they if they commit another, um, uh, if, they're, if they're caught in possession of these drugs another time, making it a class A misdemeanor would subject them again to that 364 days of potential supervision with a court able to implement appropriate sanctions. Um, and there are going to be people who are going to need more than one bite at this apple in order for it to be successful. Um, and for some people, it might never be successful. But for the people where it's likely never going to be successful, they're not going to just ultimately keep at that level. There will be at some point some action or event that will likely require um, a longer sentence. And I'm not saying that as a positive thing. It's just the unfortunate reality of the pattern of drug use and crime typically associated with drug use that results in that. Let me give you a more practical answer. You and Max had a had a, a interesting exchange here, two lawyers talking to each other. <laughs> Let me give you a more practical Please, answer. Yes. It's 1631 and 1. Uh, in order for the legislature to do anything, you have to get 16 votes in the Senate, you have to get 31 votes in the House, and you get to get the, have to get the governor to sign it. And remembering, regardless of how it was sold and how little attention Oregonians paid to ballot measure 110 and the visual impact of its failure, 58% of Oregonians still said um, treatment is better than, than criminalization. And so for us to make any practical change, you've got to craft a measure that will pass and recognize that. But they don't think that anymore, right? Like based on that Emerson poll, they now say they want recriminalization. That's what they're saying. And the people that we've talked to certainly validate that they want some level of incentive to get people into treatment. But I'm just saying practically... We're having a tough enough time selling the notion of the just the misdemeanor with the numerous off-ramps to take people out of the criminal justice system. We're frankly having a hell of a time selling that to the Oregon legislature. Right. And so getting any... Yeah, I don't know that you will. I mean, yes, for sure. Sadly, I, I mean, it's going to be... You're already up. starting high. That's the point. You're already doing what you need to do in a negotiation, which is where you start, you start high. You, you start where you... You, I mean, they may not end up adopting no, your measure. No, no, they may not. And and we work. But you want to start high. As Betsy and I and and others put this uh, draft measure together uh, in in the early fall, um, we really tried to focus on what was the best policy from our point of view. We really wanted to think about um, policy. Um, and so there's nothing in this measure that were it to pass, um, I think would be a problematic issue as a matter of policy. Um, and, and so, you know, we could have, you know, we could have been more threatening and, you know, made everything a felony and, uh, and the rest. But I actually think, um, none of us really felt strongly that that in the long run would be in the best interest of Oregon. 
or in the best interest of actually helping people who are struggling with addiction find this uh, pathway to treatment and recovery. And, you know, we really want this to work for communities as well. Um, and that means, you know, you got to talk to sheriffs and law enforcement and people who run jails and struggle with budgets and all the rest of that. So we feel good about the policy. Um, of course, you know, we started at, a, at an A misdemeanor and the legislature came back at a C misdemeanor. Right. And, you know, that that's just, I think, the, the natural challenge uh, that they're dealing with. They have a lot of people who are suggesting that doing anything around this is a rewaging the war on drugs. Of course they are. And, and that's just an unfair characterization of what we're trying to accomplish it's with this effort. Totally unfair. And one other practical aspect of this is money is going to start to pour into the effort to preserve Oregon's um, uh, current approach, the ballot measure 110, where there's no criminalization and no incentive. I came downtown in Portland the other day to help raise money for a new DA. So I was raising money for Nathan Vasquez. And in the process of being parked downtown, got a $65 ticket. I could have come downtown and smoked fentanyl for 45 bucks citation and come out 20 bucks ahead. I mean, I, I say that it's true, but it I, is true. I say it for emphasis to just show how um, complacent uh, our our view towards drugs is when we ought to be recoiling in horror. And if Kevin Barton, the DA in Washington County, were here, he would tell your listeners a heartbreaking story of a toddler whose body was so infused with fentanyl that when they did the first application of Narcan to snap this little toddler out of it, uh, it wasn't enough. They had to do another application of Narcan to save this baby's life. That's how pervasive it is. And when we talk about data and we talk about stats and all the rest of that, we got to talk about practically what happens when we're poisoning toddlers with this with the prevalence of drugs. Um, again, I am very supportive of the A misdemeanor for all of the reasons that Max laid out. Uh, it's getting the legislature to move, and I think your very influential listeners could play perhaps a dispositive role in reaching out to their legislators. Every single one of your les- uh, listeners has a senator and uh, a House member and should reach out to those po- folks, particularly those in the metropolitan core, and say, let's, let's take the view more people into more treatment faster, and that's to, to adopt our plan and, uh, and move forward. This may continue to be an iterative process, but to adopt the plan that we've offered avoids a ballot measure, uh, avoids a protracted fight in the streets gathering signatures where we know we have the public with us. And so the clarion call to action to the legislature is let's pass the proposal that we're offering and, uh, and move forward in trying to regain Oregon's reputation. When I see articles that are written in newspapers in Europe and, um, and magazine articles in very respectable publications talking about what we've done to this magnificent, beautiful city and by extension our magnificent, beautiful state, as a native Oregonian, my heart is broken. And so I, I just, I'm begging the legislature at this point to act on our proposal, which is moderate, common sense, focused on treatment, and let's get on with trying to reclaim Oregon's reputation. What else can people do? They can contact their legislators. I've had great success with not just phone calls, but also emails. What can else I, can, can I do? temper that please, for a second? Please. After 20 years in the legislature, I can tell you when you get the same email over and over and over again with people just sitting, touching sand, uh, that, that gets to have a, um, a, a kind of nullifying effect. Calls are very helpful. And a little trick that's not well known is that in the legislature, every senator's phone number is 503-986-17 and their district number. And in the House, it's 14 and their district number. And so when the legislature goes back into session on February the 5th and lasts until March the 10th, there will be people in offices. There will be committee hearings. People should go down to the Capitol. It's a difficult place to visit right now because of the level of construction and security and all of the hangover from COVID that makes it less hospitable to public engagement. But people can call their legislators. They can send emails. I would offer sending individual hand, I mean, uh, uh, personally. Yes, not uh, a form. Not Don't a do form. A form. 
um, work through their organizations, county commissioners working f- through the Association of Oregon Counties, city people working through the League of Oregon Cities. There will be all kinds of interest groups in the capital. This is not the short session to be a passenger. The short sessions were designed completely for a different purpose than how they're being treated by the legislature now. Um, but I believe out of this short session, which again is February 5th to, to uh, uh, March the 10th, I think the principal focus is going to be on ballot measure 110, and I, people should be engaged and reach out to their own legislators. Go to town halls. Legislators will be ubiquitous in an election year seeking donations. Before anybody writes a check, asks a, a putative candidate, what's your stand on 110? Um, but, but engage is the, is the real answer here. Yeah. And I, and I just direct people, we have a website, fixballotmeasure110.com. Uh, it has all the most recent news stories uh, about what's going on, including what's happening at the legislature and the various proposals. Um, and I'd encourage people to go there. It, it breaks out the measure. Our polling data uh, is there as well, so people can have a chance to see that. And if you're so inclined, there's an opportunity to donate to the effort as well. Um, if we ultimately have to... Um, take this effort to the ballot, uh, it's going to be very expensive. And we expect a whole lot of um, out-of-state national money coming in, trying to preserve the beachhead uh, that they've made around drug legalization with ballot measure 110. And so as a result, we're going to ask Oregonians to help us uh, um, fight that um, that out-of-state money and uh, make the right decision for us. I'm pretty offended that out-of-state interests think that it's okay for them to come in here and buy an outcome in Oregon. That really, really bothers me, and that's part of what happened with the passage of Ballot Measure 110. The influence of -of out-of-state money was dramatic and effective. So if we're going to fight back, we're going to fight back by asking our policymakers to vote in support of the the recriminalization and the A misdemeanor. We're going to ask Oregonians to reach into their pocketbook to ransom back their streets and their kids. Um, This is an all-hands-on-deck initiative and effort right now. And if people go to your website, fixballotmeasure110.com, they will see a familiar face, especially if you're a regular listener. Juanita Swartwood, who has been on this podcast from the Lentz Neighborhood, is front and center with a video on the website. And I think it's an incredibly powerful video. She was incredibly powerful when she was here talking about the impact of drugs, particularly hard drugs, in the Lentz neighborhood. It's been devastating. Lentz has suffered dramatically. And it was interesting. I went out to one of their Lentz community meetings that are really well organized and well attended. And after I failed in my attempt to become Oregon's governor, the the organizer of the Lentz Neighborhood Association called me up and said, you liked us when you wanted something from us. Do you still like us? <laughs> and so I started going out to Lentz community meetings. I've been to several of them. I brought the, the TriMet and the city out to talk about why their bus, or their um, max stop. They told me about that. Yeah. And, and so I become sort of an honorary Lentzian or whatever. <laughs> the, and I'm very proud of it. But Lentz community has suffered a disproportionate burden in terms of crime, drug abuse, theft, uh, all of the bad things that accompany the, the urban decay. And um, I, I, Juanita, we are deeply, profoundly appreciative for her to be willing to lay her, her soul bare in front of other people right. and to ask really seriously for help. And to tell her family story. That's, what, is, that's what I meant. Yeah, which is so powerful. That's powerful hard stuff. and heartbreaking. Yeah. It is really hard stuff. And, you know, for listeners who don't know, or for out-of-state listeners or out-of-the-country listeners, the Lentz neighborhood is not a wealthy neighborhood. This is not, not that this belongs in any neighborhood. It doesn't. But the Lentz neighborhood is, is particularly besieged because it is filled, as you know, the listeners know who've, who've been listening, it's filled with uh, immigrants. It's filled with people working multiple, multiple jobs. It's filled with economically disenfranchised people. And these are not people who have the time or the inclination to motor on down to Salem and spend a whole day. They can't do it. They're working multiple jobs that cannot be missed. They're feeding multiple mouths. A lot of these are multi-generational households. I know Juanita's families, they, they all live right next to her, and she helps take care of everybody. They all have to help take care of each other, but... The, the way that, that 
drugs have impacted this poor neighborhood is shameful and and it's on us that's on us and the legislators legislators that represent that area are among some of the toughest to convince that they need yeah. to pass our plan with the a misdemeanor it doesn't make any sense but again um i get it you know for a lot of people Opening up the voter guide is last on the list, and I get it. And so for those of us who have the privilege of being able to do things like go down to Salem and testify, we need to do it. Yes, without question. Yeah, absolutely. What what else, if anything, can people do to help your efforts? I mean, obviously, share the podcast. Share, share the website with your family and friends and neighbors. If you have a personal story, share that, because I think personal stories are powerful. Yeah, I'd encourage, uh, when you go to the website, there'll be an opportunity for you to join uh, all of our social media channels. And I'd just encourage you to join our social media channels uh, as we share out information. We hope that you'll uh, click on that and share it uh, amongst your folks. This is a grassroots effort, and we need everybody in the grass to come forward and help us. I would add to that, talk about it inside your family especially parents of adolescent or teenage young people. Um, in many respects, and I don't think this is overly, I mean, a hyperbolic, but it's a fight for their lives. Uh, the pernicious aspects of drugs and all of the concomitant problems that surround a drug culture are inducements for young people. And so bring it up with your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to those people that voted yes and say, do you know that treatment is code for harm reduction, which means the stab wagon um, and, and handing out Narcan? I believe that there's a certain pernicious effect to handing out Narcan because it's a license to continue to do certain kind of drugs with the feeling that you've got a life preserver there. It's okay. I can go fire up as many drugs as I want because I've got Narcan in my back pocket and it'll save me every time. There's a terminus to how, how effective that is. I'm sure I'm not a medical doctor, but... Um, that's not the end-all and be-all and permission to continue to use drugs because there's an, uh, there's an effective antidote to, to some of the opioids. Um, but talk about it in your families and, and see what people's reaction is. Spread the word that there is a genuine, honest, credible, and I believe compassionate attempt to try to redress some of the issues that are eating our city and our state alive and ask for your family and your friends' help. Um, anything else we should know before we wrap up here, Max and Betsy? I just really appreciate both of you coming on, and I appreciate what you're doing here for Oregon. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I, I don't know that I have more to add other than just, as Betsy said, please engage. Uh, this is probably the most important thing that Oregonians can be focused on in the next 12 months, and we need their support. And I would just say amen to that, and thank you again for your courtesy in having us. It's an honor. Thank you both.